Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Fiscal mismanagement that led to wasteful spending in the amount of a quarter million dollars at Big Bend National Park in Texas. A 67-year-old solo kayaker who's very lucky to be alive today after getting separated from his boat in the backcountry of Everglades National Park. New and controversial management plans for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. It definitely was a news-heavy week this past week. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we spend some time with Candy Harrington, a journalist who traveled the national park system to see just how accessible lodges and trails in the parks really are, and then wrote a book about what she found. And we sat down with Corey McNulty and Erica Pollard from the National Parks Conservation Association's Southwest Regional Office to discuss the Bureau of Land Management's plans for managing the greatly reduced in size Bears Ears and Grand Staircase monuments, as well as the roughly 2 million acres that were pulled out of the monuments so they could be open to mining, grazing, and other resource-impacting activities. If you are physically challenged and need a wheelchair or a walker to get around, or simply have issues with your joints that could be helped by ADA facilities, where in the national park system can you find those amenities? Candy Harrington can tell you. She's the author of a great new book, Barrier-Free Travel, National Park Lodges for Wheelers and Slow Walkers, and joins us today. Welcome to The Traveler, Candy. Well, it's great to be here. Hey, um, what spurred you to approach this issue in the parks? I mean, there are dozens of park guidebooks out there that talk about lodges and trails and whatnot. Why did you feel there was a need for for this approach to examining park lodges? Well, I've been covering accessible travel for 20 years, and I've always loved the national parks, and I've written about them. And... Over the years, I see more and more parks are doing things to make their facilities accessible. And I think staying in the park lodge is an excellent way to see the park because you just make the most of your time. And so I just decided to start looking at the lodges one by one. And a lot of them have great facilities. So I had the idea for the book maybe about five or six years ago. And it's slowly developed. And... uh, it, it takes a lot to actually look at all the national park lodges, so it's it's taken quite a bit of research time. But I'm sure I'm really happy with what I've found out there. So now um, I believe you you um, tackled 52 of the 62 parks. Well, there's 52 lodges that I actually included. I only included the lodges that had accessible facilities, and I just did the parks in the mainland U.S. Uh, mainly because the national parks are make a great road trip. So I kind of wanted people to think about the book as sort of a road trip idea book, how you can maybe go to two or three parks and stay in the lodges and do things in the parks um, and make a road trip out of it. Mm-hmm. Did you actually visit all 52 uh, lodges and parks that you uh, describe in your book? Uh, definitely. Um, many more than once because... 
you know, like I said, it, it was about a five-year research period, and I guess it's good. You know, I got down to my final fact-checking um, beginning of this year or beginning of last year, and, you know, a couple parks had added or totally redone their lodges, so I had to go back and see them again, um, you know. And I do think that you definitely have to go and look at facilities, especially when you're talking about access. You just can't say wheelchair accessible because that means different things to different people. You have to kind of tell people what's in the park or what's in the lodge. Like, does it have a roll-in shower? Are the grab bars on the left side or the right side of the toilet? Because that matters to somebody that perhaps has had a stroke and is paralyzed on one side. That's a real challenge staying on top of um, improvements because, like you said, um, you can go through the parks and, and get, do all your research. And as you're working on your manuscript, uh, you learn that you know one of the lodges improved access or changed access in some form or fashion. Yeah, and that definitely happened down in Death Valley. Um, they totally redid uh, both of their the properties down there. And, and that's good. They added uh, a beautiful... Uh, new accessible casita. They didn't have the casitas before. And, Is that um, at Furnace Creek? Know, yeah, and I had to uh, go back down and check it out because it was like, okay, yeah, oh, we forgot to tell you, we added something. It's, <laughs> you know, always those last-minute surprises that uh, make my job kind of a challenge sometimes. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um We'll get into some of the lodge specifics as as we go here this morning, but I noticed that you also um, point out um, barrier-free campsites in some of the parks. Yeah, um, you know, and I, by camping, well, there are a couple things. Um, there are campsites when people actually, like, pitch a tent and camp, and uh, some of the parks actually, people, some people call camping RVing. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a purist. i I think camping is pitching a tent, but I included both the, the campsites and RV parks where they were applicable. Yeah. And any one particular campsite in the, the system that you really enjoyed? Um, you know, I really like the, um, the ones up at Yosemite, and I think probably I'm, I'm one, and I live very close to Yosemite, and it's kind of my home park and my favorite park. I grew up going to Yosemite. Um, but I like to, to get up, um, you know, on Tioga Pass Road and get out of the valley. And, and there are some nice campsites up there, and um, they actually are wheelchair accessible. So it's, a, a, you know, I think that's probably my favorite thing, probably yeah. because it's sentimental to me. You know, we all have to have a favorite child. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I never tell my children that. <laughs> well, and it depends on the day, what it is, you know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Now, um, are you in need of ADA facilities or, or somebody you know that, that prompted you to approach this issue, tackle this issue? No, um, you know, I wish I had a great story behind this, but I've been a writer for probably about 40 years. And for the first 20 years of my career, I, I just covered mainstream travel, and I got really bored with, you know, writing what I considered fluff. So one of my friends suggested, um, why don't you do accessible travel? And like I said, that was 25 years ago, and um, no one was doing it. And it just sounded like a challenge to me. And as a journalist, I, I know how to research. I, I didn't even know anybody in a wheelchair at that point. So I had a lot to learn, 
And, well, now, I, you know, half my friends are in wheelchairs or have some need, and um, it's just sort of evolved. I've learned a lot over the years, and I cover it like a journalist, I feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go into the lodges or the cabins or the casitas to, to look at the, the the situation, do you go in with your own standard, so to speak, as to what you're looking for, or are there specific ADA guidelines that you match the facilities against? Well, my my bare minimum is they have to have an accessible room. Um, there are some historic lodges that you can't even get into. You know, they have steps, or they just don't have accessible rooms or cabins. So they have to have an accessible room. That's That's my bare minimum. What I do is I describe the access that I find. Um, different people require different things. Some people want, need a roll-in shower. Some people want just a tub shower combination with grab bars. So, um, and both fall under the ADA guidelines, depending on you know the size of the property. But most people don't know what the ADA guidelines are. They they only know what they can use. So I just describe the access and have a lot of photos, too, mm-hmm. of the accessible rooms because, well, you know, the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, um, And then I just let people decide for themselves, you know, if they're going to be able to use these facilities. Yeah. No, I think you did a, a, a wonderful job in, in approaching your task because you do provide some great details on the accessible rooms. I mean, I, I would look you know, obviously for, you know, grab bars, are they out there? Can you, can you roll into the shower or can you not roll into the shower? And, you know, you get into the height of the beds as well. And like you said, um, lots of photos to um, show people what they can expect if they go to this particular lodge and, and, you know, access that room. You know, interestingly enough, bed height is just a, a real controversial issue and it's something that people really want to know. Um, a lot of people that are in wheelchairs, they like lower beds because it's easier for them to transfer. Mm-hmm. But if you get somebody that maybe has hip problems or knee problems and you know has problems standing up, that the higher beds are easier for them. So again, I, I list bed heights so people can make the appropriate choices. What about toilet height? Um, I know that's an issue. My my in-laws um, had me replace some of the toilets in our house when they come visit. They want that slightly taller toilet, um, so it makes it easier for them. Um, and as I age, I think it makes it easier for me. But I notice in a lot of the, the historic lodges, the older lodges, the toilets are really small and low to the ground, and that's got to be an issue for some folks. Yeah, it is, and I can totally identify with that, too. I, I had a fall once, and I, I pulled my groin muscle, and I, mean, I did kind of like a Superman flying through the air thing. And, you nice. know, when I... <laughs> I look like a flying squirrel or something. And it, when I would go to get up from the toilet, if it was a low toilet, that was the most painful thing in the world. But most of the lodges, even if they do have the lower toilets, they have um, toilet risers, which are about between three and five inches. And you can put them on the toilet. They attach to the toilet, and it's portable, so you can take it off, too. Uh, So you can just request that from housekeeping if you need that. And I I certainly did in 
in, in my groin pool days. I was unfortunately on the road when this happened, so had to change hotels every day, you know. So <laughs> it, it's, uh, but it is a good thing to, to remember to, that you can ask for. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. We're talking today with Candy Harrington. She's the author of a great new book, Barrier-Free Travel, National Park Lodges for Wheelers and Slow Walkers. It's a great resource that uh, if you're a frequent National Park traveler or even the occasional traveler, um, a great resource to help you decide which lodges are um, suited for your needs. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. So, Candy, we've been talking about some of the finer details of your book, and um, you really went out of your way and and mentioned some things that uh, I think the common traveler would not be aware of. I mean, I've been writing about national parks um, for, for 15 or 20 years specifically, and I never knew that the Kachina Lodge at Grand Canyon was the only property in the park, in Grand Canyon National Park, with an elevator. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's kind of important for people uh, to know. I mean, sometimes, it, you know, you just need, people just need a ground floor property. Um, they can't do steps. They, they don't necessarily need any facilities in the room itself. But if you're in a property that it doesn't have an elevator, that's going to be a problem for you if you can't do the stairs. So you, you've got to be able, you've got to, you know, request a ground floor room, even if you don't need an accessible room, you know, at the other properties in the park, you know, besides the Kachina Lodge. Yeah, yeah, and of course, um, with with some of the older historic facilities, you're not going to run into those elevators. I wouldn't think um, it would. Be no, a- no, I mean. 
You know, Yellowstone Lodge, um, they just put in an elevator, I think it was five or six years ago when they did their renovation. So sometimes when they renovate the properties, they will add them, but generally speaking, the older properties, no, not so much. They're they're not going to have elevators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another um, tidbit that most um, guidebooks probably won't mention um, at Grand Canyon National Park, you point out the Grand Canyon Scenic Airlines has wheelchair accessible flight seeing excursions. Yeah, and that's really a great story because the, the man that owns it, um, two of his um, boys are wheelchair users. So he actually designed the flights, and it's just a long ramp that goes up to the airplane. And you can transfer right to the seat nearest the ramp. And all of the employees are just so well-versed at helping wheelchair users because they're used to seeing the suns around and helping them on flights. So um, it's a great resource, but I also thought it was a a great story on, um, you know, how something became accessible that most people would think wouldn't be accessible. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, some of the finer details. At Grand Canyon, you point out that Yaki Point on the South Rim offers some great windshield views of the canyon um, and is a popular alternative to Mather Point for a sunrise photo. And yet, while private vehicles are prohibited along the road to Yaki Point, disabled visitors can get a scenic drive accessibility permit and drive their own vehicles down that road. Yeah, and that's a really beautiful thing to do for sunrise. All the shuttles, all the shuttles in Grand Canyon are wheelchair accessible, and you can take a shuttle there if you want. But they're really crowded, especially for that sunrise view. So yeah, you know, you can just show your placard to um, anybody at the visitor center or at a ranger station, and they'll give you um, something to put on your car that you can drive down to Yaki Point. So you know, definitely make use of that if if you go there. Yeah, yeah. Now at um, Death Valley, you um, obviously <clears throat> you obviously have an entry on Stovepipe Wells Village Hotel, and in it you mentioned that the the bathroom in the room has a a full five foot turning radius. Did you go into all lodges with a tape measure and and check those uh, radiuses out? Well, I didn't. Um, I didn't measure the radius, but I've been doing long this long enough where I know what a five foot radius looks like. But I do measure things like the beds, and sometimes I'll measure door clearances if they look a little small to me, mm-hmm. just to make sure that they're um, appropriate. But yeah, I do take a tape measure with me. Um, generally, I, I don't measure every little thing in the room, but again, I've been doing this long enough where I can just eyeball something that looks maybe a little off to me, mm-hmm. um, then, I'll, then I'll pull out my tape measure. And then everyone gets really nervous when I pull out my tape measure, so I have to explain. It's just, I'm just doing this for, you know, my readers. They like to know the bed height. They like to, you know, they always look at me like, well, did we pass? And it's like, no, no, no. It's I'm just gathering information, you know. Yeah. So it's a fine line. You have to walk there sometimes. Sure, sure. Um, and at Kings Canyon National Park, uh, you checked out the Grove cabins and um, found some fairly good facilities there as well. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of an uh, an overlooked park. I think Kings Canyon and Sequoia are kind of overlooked in general. Everyone goes to Yosemite in California, and they totally forget you know Yosemite or Kings Canyon and Sequoia, which is just a short drive, and you could just pack it onto your road trip. Um, 
you know, and, and again, they have some great facilities there um, and some nice accessible trails. You can actually, you know, get to see the big trees um, and even, you know, there's scenic drive too. It's it's just a nice park to add on to Yosemite visit, I think. It really is. It really is. And it is overlooked and uh, um, I wouldn't mind if it stayed overlooked. Yeah, um, I know. It's like we all have our own little secrets and we're not going to say that little secret place that we absolutely love. That's not going in the book, but, you know, and I'm sure you have your secret places too that you don't want to tell anybody because you don't want them to change. But, um, you know, it's... Um, yeah, I I enjoy or Sequoia and Kings Canyon. It's and I'll go there too, just during the week sometimes. Now, also in your book, you you mention um, accessible trails in the park system, and you you point out that um, the trail doesn't exactly have to be flat and paved in order to be accessible. That's true. This um, the guidelines, and they do have guidelines for trails in national parks, and. It doesn't have to be flat. You're allowed a certain amount. I think you can be up to 8%, but you have to have a rest every uh, 30 feet. You have to have a level spot. So if you think that, I mean, and I've gone on, in, when you think about it, when somebody pushing a manual wheelchair, if they've got some upper body strength, they're going to need a level spot every now and then, or else they're going to be just going down that hill backwards unless they turn sideways or something. So yeah. that's why they have the, um, but, you know, a lot of people can do um, a little bit of a more challenging trail. Some of them can't. Um, and when you say wheelchair accessible trail, a lot of people think it's got to be totally flat. And that's not necessarily the case. So, again, I, and I describe the trails pretty much like I describe the rooms. So, you know, in, in, including things like the surface, is it dirt, is it paved, does it have some gravel on it? Um, to give people a really good idea of what they've got in store for them. Yeah, yeah. Overall, how would you rate the accessibility in the national park system? Well, I think it's improving. I think it's totally improved. I, like I said, I've, I've been covering accessible travel for, for 25 years. And if you look at the Grand Canyon 25 years ago, they had a tiny little portion of the rim trail that was accessible and now they've got five miles of accessible trail along the rim so i think in general it's improved there's going to be some things that are never going to be wheelchair accessible because we're dealing with the environment um you know the cables you know Mm -hmm. um going i mean going up some mountains no that's not going to be accessible but you know if you want to look at it this way, I mean, Mark Wellman actually, you know, climbed Half Dome in a wheelchair with adaptive equipment. So is it accessible? I don't know. It was accessible to him. So it's, um, you know, it's improving. I, I'm, I think the national parks are doing a good job, and I see improvements. I keep going to the parks every year to check things out like you do, and I see improvements every year. So yeah. I think we're going in a positive direction. Well, that's good. Is there one park that seems to stand out above the others? And, and I guess, you know, that comes down to a, a number of factors, um, both uh, park service funding and, and concessionaire willingness and funding and uh, obviously the terrain. You know, I, I'm going to, if I have to say, like, what I think is the most accessible park, and I'll probably, you know, that's, again, in uh, different in anybody's opinion, but I'm going to go with the Grand Canyon 
um, again, they've got the five miles of the rim trail, and they also have the, the Greenway Trail, which is a bike trail, but that's, mm-hmm. I think it's like 13 miles, and that's all accessible. And you can do as little or as much of it as you want. And you also mentioned, you pointed out the Yaki Point. Um, you can get a driving pass to go in there. And all their shuttle buses, their tours, they're all accessible. And five of the six lodges in there have accessible rooms. And Bright Angel is the only one that doesn't. They have the cabins really hard to to make them accessible. But even in the last couple of years, they have made the lodge accessible. So you can go into the day lodge. Um, mm-hmm. Prior, it wasn't. Um, there was a couple steps going up. And they, you know, just totally improved that. So you can go in and see the big historic fireplace and uh, that now. But, um, yeah, I, I think Grand Canyon, they've just made so many improvements. And, again, 25 years ago, it was like, oh, my. You know, there. I think one lodge maybe had an accessible room, and it really wasn't that good. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, if you want to go to a park that's really got some great access, and you don't even have to be able to walk at all to, to get the Great Canyon view. You can just walk out back door of several lodges and it's right there yeah is there any park that um you would discourage people in wheelchairs or or needing a walker to avoid you know um i don't like to discourage people you know just sort of you know make your own decision but i think people have to look at it realistically if it's a park that involves a lot of walking and you you can't walk. You you you're in a, a walker and you have to sit down. You know and and do a lot of rest. Um, then I would I would just say to evaluate your own abilities and look at the park realistically. So because you know different parks are going to be more accessible for some people and not for others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this book, of course, um, covers the entire. Uh, well, it covers 52 of the 62 parks out in the park system. You've got some park-specific books, don't you? I do. I started writing books about national parks, um, I think about 2013. And The Grand Canyon, of course, was my first book. But I also have um, one on, of course, Yosemite and Kings Canyon, the Washington National Parks. I have Utah National Parks, too. Um, All on accessible travel. All on accessible travel, and I'm working on one on Death Valley now, too. Nice. Where can folks get these books? Well, you can get them on Amazon, of course. You can get everything on Amazon today. Um, But you can also, I have a website, emerginghorizons.com, and just click on books, and it has all of my books there. Nice. We've been talking today with Candy Harrington. She's the author of a wonderful new book, Barrier-Free Travel, National Park Lodges for Wheelers and Slow Walkers. It's a great resource if you want to know which park lodges have ADA facilities and which trails in the national parks you can handle. Candy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's, it's a wonderful title, and uh, I hope you great success with it. Well, thank you. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. 
That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Back in 2017, President Trump issued proclamations to redraw the boundaries of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in southern Utah. In short, he chopped two million acres combined from the two monuments, actions that opened up those acres to mining, grazing, and other resource-impacting uses. The president's actions angered Native Americans who considered the areas sacred as well as conservationists and environmentalists and could even have an impact on recreational tourism to the region. But it was welcomed by many area residents, Utah's governor, and the state's congressional delegation. This past week, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management finalized management plans for the smaller monuments and for the acres removed from the monuments. To discuss this development, we're joined by Erica Pollard and Corey McNulty from the National Parks Conservation Association's Southwest Regional Office. Welcome to The Traveler, ladies. Thanks for having Thanks. Good to be here. So, in short, what's the big picture? What, what happened here? What's happened here is that um, the, while the um, monument reductions um, that cut um, Grand Staircase by nearly half and Bears Ears by 85%, while those are being um, fought over in court and that decision has not yet been made whether or not those monument reductions are legal, and our position is that they are illegal. Um, the BLM has moved forward and really rushed forward with changing the management for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. Um, and what that means for Bears Ears is that the land um, that they, they removed from the monument will still be open and has not been protected um, in Grand Staircase, that means that the land that they removed from the monument that has had protections for over two decades, those protections are now removed. You know, you mentioned the litigation and, and the lawsuits were filed, I think, 
actually the day that uh, the president issued his proclamations from the the capital in Salt Lake City. What's the status of the litigation? Doesn't it prevent the management plans from being implemented while those lawsuits are pending? The status of the litigation is that um, the uh, the federal government tried to dismiss the cases and the judge did not allow the dismissal of the cases. And so at this point, um, there are are there's information that's being shared with the judge, but no decision has been made yet. So we are waiting on that. Um, there has not been a stay in the implementation of those um, of those reduced boundaries. So the BLM is claiming that they are required to go forward with management planning, but they've spent millions of dollars um, to put these plans together and are now poised to really change. Um, how the the lands are managed themselves. Up to this point, they have been managed under the previous management plans. No. And there has been an agreement in um, within the, the lawsuit that the BLM do, does need to inform the litigants if there is going to be some sort of groundbreaking activity, um, you know, on the landscape that's been removed for the parks, but that's or for the the monuments. Um, but that is something that we need to stay diligent um, in watching out for different proposals on that landscape that was removed from the from the monuments. Would, would any such action to start exploration or open grazing areas would that prompt the the MPCA and the other organizations to to seek a, an injunction while the main lawsuits are still pending? I think all the lawyers that are working on this, um, and there are various groups that are suing, including the tribes, um, I think they're looking at that every step of the way. Um, but I think it's a it's a pretty high bar to, you have to show that there will be an impact. Um, and so they don't want to do that prematurely. Um, and I think that's what the public doesn't necessarily understand. Often I get questions, why is this continuing to go forward? And um, there are a lot of there's a lot of expertise focused on this. And I think when the when the time is right, um, they will ask for that. But that has not been identified yet. Yeah. Now, to some, this area in southern Utah might appear as wastelands. It's dry. It's cut by dusty washes. There's not a lot that grows there in comparison to northern Utah. Why is it so special? Why? Why does so much acreage need to be protected as national monuments? You know, I think um, before the monuments were reduced, um, they, along with five different national park units, created kind of this contiguous protected landscape that encompassed incredible cultural resources, significant, obviously, to many Native American communities and those who really fought for Bears Ears, Um, paleontological resources, just incredible canyons and hoodoos, this this iconic southern Utah landscape that so many people uh, come to Utah to experience and explore. Um, so to remove the protections and kind of break up that, that, that landscape of the monuments and the national parks is really putting that at risk and could potentially impact the things that people are coming to here, here to experience, including the dark night skies and the natural quiet. Does what could happen on those two million acres that have been freed up from the monuments have an impact on the national parks, the Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands, Arches, and Zion? 
as Erica mentioned earlier, um, these monuments connect this landscape. So you have Bryce Canyon to the west, and then Grand Staircase, and that connects with Glen Canyon and Capitol Reef. And then as you go across the landscape, you have Bears Ears Natural Bridges and Canyonlands. And so, so for Grand Staircase particularly, you have had um, not only protections on the landscape for the monument itself, but also the adjacent national parks. And, um, and so what that means is that there has been compatible uh, management from the neighboring um, lands to the national parks, which has protected the clean air, the dark night skies, the natural soundscapes, and really has created the seamless experience across the landscape. And that you're gonna lose because the, the lands that they removed from Grand Staircase and from Bears Ears basically pull those boundaries away from the national parks. And so you have protected monuments and then you have these lands where the, the protections were removed, where they're proposing oil and gas development, coal mining, off highway vehicle use and other um, right of ways for um, pipelines and other right of ways um, through that area. And so that really, they're putting that on the landscape between the remaining monuments and the national parks. But don't the area's residents get a voice in what essentially is their backyard and how it's managed? Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, to that point, there were a lot of local uh, residents and business owners who um, really fought loudly to, to maintain the monument boundaries and really depend on that for their livelihood and the tourism. And um, unfortunately, a lot of those voices have been discounted in this process. And I would say that was one of the things that was um, the most disheartening yesterday when the plans came out. Um, the, the plans that came out yesterday mirror pretty closely what we had expected. But I think what was really surprising was the press release that the Bureau of Land Management put out that really um, made it sound like every single Utah supported the reductions in the monuments and that um, it really did dismiss all of the thousands of Utahns, um, as well as people across the country that have been supportive of the original Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. So what happens now? Where do we go to from here? Well, the fight's not over. Um, you know, although the, the, the BLM might think that this is the final decision for the monuments, we'll continue um, to support our tribal allies and fight for, um, you know, the long-term protections in the courts. But we'll also stay vigilant in terms of, you know, as they proceed to implement these management plans and really be paying attention to what some of those threats are, particularly on the landscapes that were removed from the monuments, but also um, with, you know, management inside the, the shrunken um, monuments. So now that the, the resource management plans are put out, there will be next steps to determine where um, off-highway vehicles will be allowed and other travel management. So there will be another layer of planning and details, but um, the, the lands now are open to oil and gas leasing and um, coal mining. And so we will be watching for that on the landscape. Okay. We've been talking today with Erica Pollard and Corey McNulty from the National Parks Conservation Association's Southwest Regional Office about Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Southern Utah. 
and what the recent developments in um, BLM management plans for those reduced uh, monuments mean and what happens going forward. Ladies, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for, thanks for having us. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. At The Traveler, we depend on grants, sponsorships, and reader and listener support to keep you informed. We believe that if you share our mission and come to understand and embrace the national parks as best you can, you will choose to support that mission with a contribution. By helping us, we will help keep you informed on national parks and protected areas. Please donate today at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.